Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne tonight in the name of Jesus, thanking you for your goodness and your generosity to us, that you would give us this beautiful word to study, to read, and to reveal yourself and your heart and your plan to us, that you would send your own son to die in our place, that we might have eternity, that we might have your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us your Holy Spirit, Lord God, without measure, to reveal all these things to us, to strengthen and empower us to be what you created us to be. Help us tonight, Lord God, to uh, throw off the, the pressure of the world and the way that it pushes and to be yielded to the power of your Holy Ghost tonight, Lord. Help us to find ourselves in those fields with Ruth, gleaning from your word, Lord. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you are still there. I wanted uh, Mariah to do a special for us tonight, if you would do that now.
Praise you, Lord. Well, church, we are a bride that's being prepared for our husband. And we're supposed to be in love with him. And that song um, came out of my heart in a time of worship. Marty had gone to Panama to minister with the African brother. And uh, the girls and I stayed behind, and we were praying. It was one of his first trips abroad. And uh, I knew we really needed to pray. And uh, it was, I, th I think it was Mary Beth, not Mariah, who was on the piano playing. And she was just playing, playing chords, and we were praying and worshiping. And uh, we got so much into the presence of God and felt his presence so strongly as we prayed and interceded for Panama and for uh, souls to be saved there. You know, one of the keys that we miss in our spiritual life is the purpose of the word of God. You know, it's, it's when I heard one brother say that the gifts of the spirit function best on the field. We want the Holy Ghost to do supernatural things for us just for the fun of it. But Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power on high to go and preach the gospel, not to have a, a personal supernatural party. And so when we are functioning as the body of Christ, as we should, supernatural things happen. And his presence filled that room, and we felt his heart for Panama, and this song just came. And in that supernatural presence, which I trust everyone in here has been in that place of worship where Jesus Christ and his presence and his love becomes so much greater that it pushes everything else out. And in that moment when, when we wrote that song, it was, it was like, I don't ever want to leave this place. I don't ever want to get off of my knees and go back to the world. I want to stay right here with Jesus. And you know, that's something that we Christians have to fight to hang on to. We are salmon swimming upstream, and we fight to hold on to that presence. As Brother Marty preached it so beautifully this morning out of the book of Ruth when Boaz told her, stay in this field. Stay in my field. Don't go to another field. All your provision is right here. And we have to learn as we walk by the way, as we lay down at night, as we get up in the morning, as we sit down to eat, to hold to that presence, to have a heart of worship, to let Jesus be real to us at all times. Um, no place I'd rather be than in the presence of my holy king. You know, that's where we're headed. We're headed to be with him forever and ever and ever. And we can't get excited about that if we've never experienced it at all. And uh, as we say so much, the modern-day church is standing in the pulpit in the name of Jesus Christ and pushing the body to fall in love with everything in the here and now in the natural world, the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. Because this world's going to pass away. You might have, you know... I don't want to make fun of anybody. I mean, I, I love these brothers. They are misguided, but you, might, you can have your best life now, your, your 12 keys to success. You can have all the cars. You can have all the houses. You can have all these things. You can have 100 million promotions before you die, but that's all going to burn up and pass away. What will you have when you stand before Christ? 
And the thing that is most precious in the kingdom of God is souls. It's souls. And that's just such foreign language to us in the church today because we've actually been taught and directed to focus on me and not let the Holy Ghost begin to take over our hearts and fill us with so much love. How many of you had a radical born-again experience where all you wanted to do was tell somebody about Jesus? You couldn't walk down the street with, without seeing every person you saw. It's like, I wonder if they know. I wonder if they know. I wonder if they're saved. And you, and you talk to absolute strangers and scare them and whatever, but you don't care because you want everyone to know this Jesus. And then in, in the modern church, in the Western church, what happens? Everybody waits for you to calm down and grow up. And what really happens is we just die and become self-centered. And we should be fanning the flames of Christians like that. You're like that when you first get born again because that's natural. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go straight into the harvest. We talked about the woman at the well a, a little while ago. As soon as Jesus told, Jesus told her, her her history and said, I'm the Messiah, and she believed, she ran off, left her water pot there, and told everybody she knew, I just met the Messiah. That's completely natural. To not do that is unnatural. And I have to question if we don't have that in us, if we don't have that response when we come to faith, maybe we haven't really met the real Jesus, or maybe we've forgotten him and how wonderful he is. But we come to this house, we come together to encourage ourselves, we look into the word to encourage ourselves, to fan the flames of revival in our heart. Tonight, um, I want to talk about something that to the natural man would seem dark. But to the spiritual man, it's really not. Um, I want to talk about uh, martyrdom. And I want to talk to you about it uh, out of the word. And I'm believing God, the Holy Spirit, to bring it to life, to let us see it the way he sees it. Because there's a lot of people today, especially Mariah expressed it the other day at uh, choir, especially young people, that are beginning to see what's coming down the road politically. They're hearing the hoofbeats better than some of us who are older because we're, we're more thicker skinned. And they're beginning to be fearful of, of what's coming on the earth. And we need to not pretend it's not there. We need to face it face the truth with the word of God and let him change us and empower us. Amen? Praise you, Jesus. Did I pray already? I don't think I did. I did? Okay. <laughs> pray again. Okay, let's, let's start with, let me read you a few things to start with to set this up. No, we're going to start in Genesis 4.10 and then I'm going to read to you. Uh, we'll start in Genesis 4, 6. Genesis 4, 6. Back at the very beginning, the second generation of mankind, the first children born to Adam and Eve. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you wroth? Why are you angry? Why are you mad? One of the things I think is very interesting here is that God and Cain have open communication. 
So we can't look at Cain as though he is this, you know, demon seed that's just so far from God. He's listening to God. God's talking to him. They're interacting. So he was a child of God. And the Lord said to Cain, why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And we know that he just had an experience where he brought um, the work of his hands, the fruits of his gardens to God for an offering, and his brother Abel brought uh, livestock. God came down in fire and consumed his brother's uh, offering and rejected his. And so Cain becomes angry at Abel, and God who sees all things sees this and asks Cain, and this is interesting too, he asks Cain, why are you angry? and your countenance fallen. He could have said, Cain, you're angry at your brother because you're just jealous and you don't want to do right and da 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 But this is how God deals with us. He asked him a question so that he would think about himself, so that he would inspect his own heart, so that he would ponder why he was in this place of wrath and sin and anger. And um, verse 7, If you do well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Um, this implies that Cain knew how to make a right sacrifice. Remember, Adam and Eve were his parents. It implies that God made known to them how to do it, but Cain wanted to do it his own way. Reminds me a whole lot of the modern church. Not the world, but the modern church. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, go and preach the gospel. Go and preach repentance. Go and tell them I died for their sins. Go and tell them about the kingdom of God. So the modern church says, yeah, that doesn't go so well. You know, we just get a few people that are interested in that. Let's tell them that it's all about this kingdom of this world and let's tell them not about how Jesus died or that they're sinners because that's offensive let's just tell them that God thinks they're awesome and let's just tell them that God wants to bless them and give them stuff we like that message same kind of thing here with Cain he did what he wanted regardless of what God said and we can deceive ourselves into trying to line up what we want to do and twist it and wrap it around the word of God. And we deceive ourselves, but we don't deceive him. Now, this is very interesting. He said, if you don't do well, if you do the wrong thing, sin lies at the door. Turning from God, you're either going towards God or away from him. And what we never do that we think we do is stand still in the middle of the street and not choose and do our own thing for a while. When we're not obeying God, we're sliding downhill. We are sliding back, and we are in the enemy's camp. There's just two spirits we're going to talk about tonight, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Antichrist. And all of us are going to serve one or the other. All of us are serving one or the other right now to one degree or another. Some of us try to serve both for a while. But God's going to heat things up to where we're all going to decide. We're all going to pick who we're going to serve. So God is so faithful, and he's warning Cain, and he said, sin is lying at your door. God saw what was going to happen. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Um, 
this is one of those strange uh, passages that people argue over. I think it means what it says. Sin is desiring you. Sin is desiring you. Sin is desiring me. It's desiring to take this vessel God made for his glory and use it for darkness. But you shall rule over him. Cain had the power to make the choice. Cain, you and I, we have the power. We can't say the devil came and made me. I mean, you can choose to listen to the devil to the point where you become in deep, dark bondage and you do become overpowered by him, but not at the outset. In verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel and his brother and slew him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. What I wanted to bring out is that at the very, very inception of the human race, we have the first martyr. The first martyr. And that spirit would carry on until... When you read the book of Revelation, it is so full of references to martyrdom and the heart of God being moved because of the martyrdom. Living in America, that is hard to grasp because we're not seeing it firsthand. And so it's a part of the word that we have got to take hold of. It's easy to ignore the parts of the word that don't seem relevant to us, and we cannot do that, especially not at this day and at this hour that we're living in. So I'm going to read to you for just a minute. Um, Christian History Magazine uh, put out a study in which they said that two-thirds of the 2.3 billion Christians alive are at risk or in dangerous places. In other words, um, more than 200 million face persecution in dangerous lands in, uh, uh, let's see, 105 of the 196 countries on the earth are hostile to Christianity, and you could be martyred there. That floored me. I had never seen the numbers. 105 of 196 countries are hostile to Christianity, and if you want to be a believer, you can be martyred there. That's reality. More than 200 million Christians face persecution every day. Two-thirds of the Earth's Christians live in these kinds of places. Wow. I, uh, we had, uh, when that, that shooting happened, uh, which shooting was it? One of the shootings here where they were um, asking them if they were Christians and if they said no, then they uh, shot them, or at least that was the rumor. It was a recent one. Um, some friends of ours in Europe said, well, if that happened to you, wouldn't you just say, I'm, I'm not a Christian? And uh, my daughter was talking to them, and she said, well, no, I couldn't do that. And she said, well, God would know. And she said, she said that just seems stupid to say that you're a Christian and die, but she just didn't really understand. She's in Europe, and Christianity is like this, it's just such high church, that the saying you're Christian is like saying you're a European, or, you know, I'm European Christian, I'm, I'm European Caucasian, so I'm Christian. 
in some places, that's still the thought, not very many. Christianity is, is really becoming a, a taboo thing over there because it's not politically correct. And in Europe, everything, the push has been about politically correct. Don't step on anybody's toes. Everybody's great. Everybody's fine. But it's starting to change, which is part of the reason that uh, the UK left the EU, because they want to be able to make their own decisions about their money and about who comes into their country. They are reaping the uh, craziness, just like France is, of just randomly letting everybody come in. And no matter how much people want to close their eyes, you know, there is martyrdom coming from Islam in, in, a, in a huge and horrible scale. And um, I'm, not, I'm not here to be political, political or say what the U.S. should do about it or anything like that tonight, but it's real. It's real. The spirit of Antichrist is going to move in religion, and it's going to move in politics, and it's going to keep moving forward. Does that mean we don't pray? Does that mean we don't vote? Does that mean we don't get involved? Absolutely not. We do what we can until the Lord allows things to go. But we don't want things to go south because we're lazy. If the Lord, we'll be accountable for that. If the Lord allows it, the Lord allows it. He'll give us the grace and the power we need to walk through it. Um, one study says 100,000 Christians are killed every year in the earth. Another study said 10,000. Another study uh, by a secular group said 7 to 8,000. And that's based on what they all call a Christian. Do you, do you include the Catholics? Do you include massive numbers of Christians that are killed in some of these civil wars between you know, Muslims and Christians and so on and so forth? But, I mean, at the lowest, 7 to 8,000 Christians a year are killed in the earth just for being Christian. That's at the lowest, at the highest, 100,000 a year. Um, the study said that uh, in the 20th and 21st century already, more Christians have been killed than in the other 19th centuries all put together. That has something to do with population increase, of course, but it also has something to do with the day and the hour we're living in. The uh, birth pangs are getting stronger um, if you're interested, I have some more statistics I can read. I, I found it really interesting. Um, since the time of Christ, they estimate 70 million Christians have been martyred. In Nazi Germany, they estimate a million were killed just for being Christians. Not Jews, six million Jews, but a million Christians for being Christians, standing up to the Jews, being put in concentration camps, being shot for resisting uh, Russia, 1970 to 1950, um, 15 million Christians. In China, during the Boxer Rebellion, I didn't know this, 200,000 were killed. Communist China, 1950 to 1980, they, they estimate 700,000 martyred. That's not counting just people just put in prison who weren't martyred. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know about the persecution of the Catholics in Mexico in the late 1800s and the early 1900s when the government decided it didn't want any believers and they killed and at least 107,000 Catholics who wouldn't give up their faith. This is all the spirit of Antichrist coming through these different leaderships, coming through these different politics, and very often... Uh, Faith is involved. Religion is involved. For instance, in, uh, 
communist China, when communist China came to power, a whole bunch of uh, Christian ministers joined the state church and, and um, reported and turned in their brothers who didn't want to join the state church. They didn't want to join the state church because you can't preach the second coming, you, you can't preach um, the Holy Ghost, you can't preach all these different things. Um, so their own brothers who had, had been in meetings and prayer meetings and song services with them for years prior to that turned them in and helped to persecute them. Scary stuff. When you look at the state church in uh, China and the state church in Russia and you see what they allow, they say, oh, yes, we have freedom of religion. You just have to register with us. You have to register with the government. You have to go to the church we say, and then the pastors have to tell the government what they're going to preach. And if they preach the wrong thing, it's prison or death. And we see the signs of that in our country. Um, we had it in Texas and now another state where they're wanting the pastors to turn in their sermons so that the government can say if it's okay or not. Losing our freedom of religion. And you know, based on the stipulations of what they want, what they say is okay to preach and what they say is not, and I tell you what, the second coming is really going to be coming into persecution because they're going to say we're just like the Muslims. We have this, ap um, uh, uh, what is that word, apocalyptic idea it's dangerous, and they're going to tell us we can't preach it anymore. It's bound to come if things continue in the vein that they're going. But when I listen to a lot of what I hear on TV and read a lot of the popular Christian books, I'm like, you know, a whole lot of the popular Christian ministers would have no trouble joining the state church based on what they preach and what they don't preach. I mean, they're already there. They're already, like, signed up for that idealism. Scary times. But God always has a people, and he is stirring up people by his Holy Spirit to get on fire, to dig in, and to realize that this war is heating up in the Spirit, and we need to be prepared, and we need to prepare our young people. Praise you, Lord. Uh, the study says, which you could probably guess, the worst place on earth to be a Christian is North Korea. It says that there are only 300 thousand Christians. Of course, this is only what, you know, they can report by what people tell them. There, there may be more. Um, 300,000 Christians in a population of 24.5 million. And I would imagine there are a lot more Christians. That, that, that's, you're not going to say you're a Christian in a place like that um, unless it's uh, it, foolishly. I mean, we never want to deny Christ, but when you're living in a place like that, you don't want to be foolish because the Christians that are there are about the master's business, and they're trying to get others saved, and they're trying to get the message out, but every day their lives are in jeopardy. And when you read about some of the stuff that they do, you know, are there any young people here tonight, little children? Stuff that they do to Christians' children, you know, right in front of them, trying to get them to renounce their religion is just horrifying. And you read these things, I read these things, and you think, oh, my Lord, that would take such supernatural strength and supernatural grace to deal with that. And I think I, think I need to wake up and be prepared for what may come because we have this idea that in Christianity, nothing bad is going to happen. It's a totally Western idea, and it's false, but we have that idea in us. And if we would get into the word, we would get a different idea. Um, 
I am not going to read the rest of that, except for to tell you what m most of you probably already know. Northern Africa, Western Africa, the Middle East, all over Asia, and down through Indonesia is where the major persecution of the world is going on for Christians. And there's also persecution of Muslims against Muslims, the radical Muslims against the uh, more liberal Muslims, um, Muslims against Hindus, Hindus against Muslims. So uh, that's going on as well. And in those religions, unlike Christianity, it's perfectly fine to kill the people that you oppose. That's a very scary thing. But that's, to me, not as scary as when the governments get involved and when the government and the false church come together. Um, let's go to the book of Revelation. And what, where do I want to start? Grab my Bible and drop my notes. Awesome. Okay. Let's go to chapter 13. You know, back up one. I want to read this verse that you're familiar with, uh, chapter 12, verse 11. Well, we'll start with we'll start with verse nine, and the chapter twelve, verse nine. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called Devil and Satan, called the Devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, "Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of His Christ." For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused him before our God day and night. Verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, number one, the word of their testimony, number two, and number three, the great forgotten portion, they loved not their lives unto the death. To overcome the enemy in Christian history has many times required giving up the life, not loving the life unto the death. And even those of us that may not be called to be martyred, I believe that God is trying to bring us to that place. I know he's trying to bring us to that place. I believe that's true Christianity. Loving not our lives unto the death. Because when you become a Christian, the day that Jesus Christ becomes real to you, like in the case of me, um, there was a day because I had become blinded. I, I, I knew him as a child, but then I had become blinded with atheistic thinking and all kinds of other crazy worldly thinking to where he was not real to me anymore. And through the prayers of my grandmother and through the will of God, he revealed himself to me on one bright and shiny day. And I cannot tell you that I saw him. And I don't think anybody in here can tell me that you saw him. But something inside of you became convinced that Jesus Christ is the living God, that he's real. And you would say, I know him, I love him, I met him. 
and you're talking about somebody who lives in a completely different realm, the eternal realm of the spirit. And we studied it last week. Those that would worship him, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And in spirit and in truth. And he desires us to be in that spiritual mindset, in that spiritual place, in a place where our spirit is greater than our outward man, greater than our, our personal will and emotions, and that the spirit is the most real thing. And if you've, I've got a bag full of books here that I'm gonna share with you guys. The Heavenly Man, uh, uh, a man who was imprisoned in China uh, for being uh, one of the leaders of the house church, and uh, some stories about some people persecuted in the Middle East who became Christians, who were Muslims, and um, I've just got a whole bag full of them, and I'm going to share them with you guys because I think it's incredibly powerful. It's like reading the book of Acts in the modern day because they're pushed into the Lord. They're pushed to him. Everything in the world is pushing them to Jesus Christ, and they get to a place that's so wonderful and powerful in him. But they live in that place where he's more real than their natural body, their natural life, and that's where we need to be to overcome the pressure that's going to come against us. Maybe. I hope not. But I'm planning, I'm planning in case it does because we are not the norm here in America. The other two-thirds of the church is the norm. They're the norm. And I tell you what, it's very hard for America to raise up real missionaries in this mindset that we're in. I heard a brother on the Pilgrim Radio this morning, and I just laughed because we've been overseas, and he was talking about missions, and, and he was just brokenhearted over the state of missions as far as what America is sending out. And he said that the best thing that could happen to the mission field today is if the majority of American missionaries went home. And from what I saw out there, I have to agree with him because they're sowing garbage amongst the church. As he put it, they're out there spreading the very thing, same things that are destroying the American church. Hmm. I know when we were, we were in Africa a few years back and uh, all you were hearing out of anybody, and these were people that had a precious faith. These were people that would pray for hours. These were people that would spend all day in church. These were people that had a love for God, but it was being perverted. And they were in love with the American, uh, the American preachers to come over and tell them how to get money. And that's all that they cared about. And it was heartbreaking. And um, things are, are not very safe in Africa. We were in Uganda, and things are taking a turn there. And uh, it's just a sin that rather than preparing them, that the American church went over there to distract them and to unsettle their roots. But God is faithful. And the truth is going to be known. The truth is going to be known before it's all over. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, he said. Um, let's go to chapter 13. And we're talking here about uh, the beast. The immersion of the beast in chapter 13. And um, I don't know how much I should read. Let's see. Let's start with verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who's able to make war with him? 
And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Blasphemies. In another place it talks about that he begins to blaspheme uh, God and those who are in heaven. He begins to um, blaspheme everything that's godly. What we will see if we were as far along in these things as I think we are, and we're already beginning to see it, we're going to see from the governments of the world, we're going to see Christianity begin to be just uh, spoken evil against in every way. It's going to get worse and worse. We're going to be painted as the, as the disease of the earth. It's us and our religion and our intolerance that's messing up everything and not allowing us to have world peace. And uh, it's going to get to the place to where, um, and it's already, it's already pretty close to there. Um, I was sharing with some friends recently that before Obama got elected, I woke up, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I woke up in the middle of the night and there was C-SPAN was on and I sat down and there was uh, Mr. Obama who was then running for his first term. And I mean, it was like two in the morning and they were showing this old archived uh, film of him being interviewed when he was running to be senator. And uh, they asked him what did he think was, uh, I think, I don't want to misquote him, but it was something on the order of, you know, what, what's, what's wrong with America? And he said, well, a big part of it is the Bible Belt. He said, one of the first things we need to do is get down there and re-educate all of those people. All they have to listen to is all of those Bibles, radio stations, you know, and they, and they just, you know, they're just all so darkened in their mind, and they're a big part of the problem of our nation. Then he goes to run for president and, and writes a book about how, he was, how he's a Christian, which simply isn't true. Um, nothing against him. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just the truth. The word tells us to pray for our leaders, and we should pray for our leaders, whoever they are, but... I'm just bringing that out in light of what we're, we're preaching. The word never says we're all going to have all Christian leaders. We pray for them, but we also need to see the signs of the time. Um, verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Wow. He's going to be given power to overcome the saints. When we read that in America, it's like, I don't like that, you know. But there have been brothers and sisters throughout Christian history and other parts of the world that have been dying for their faith. And if you ask them, if you go to communist China, yes, in government, yes, in the natural life, the beast, if you want to call it that, of communism, which is a part of it. I mean, as you read through, we're not going to read it all, but as you read about the beast, it's many faceted. It's an it's a animal with these different features and different characteristics, you know. Could it, could it be um, Islam and communism and, you know, all these different things? Yes. Uh, some people want to make everything the Catholic Church because of uh, throughout the church ages, the uh, horrible things that have been done through the Catholic Church. It's all just part of it. Um, there's plenty I've read about um, with the Protestant Church. It's the, it's the harlot. It's the unfaithful. It's those that bear the name of Christ and do heinous things 
and become involved in martyring God's true people, both in religion and in politics. So you need to watch both. So I'm reading this because I want to enlighten our minds. The word says that he will be given power over the saints to make war with them and to overcome them. I just read it. Have any of you ever read about uh, Richard Wormbrand, who was imprisoned in Romania uh, for being an underground church leader? It's called Tortured for Christ. And if you've never read it, you should read it. It's, it's an important part of church history. And as he recounted it, he doesn't even tell you all the tortures because he said that they're so horrible that if he did share it all, he can't even sleep at night. He, he made it through by the grace of God, but he shares some things. He talked about when they would be, when the communists would be torturing them. Another thing that's beautiful is he talks about the communists with love and about how that they're blinded and brainwashed and, and that their greatest goal was to win them to the Lord. And when they'd be tortured, they'd, be, they'd go into their uh, cells and begin to pray for the ones that tortured them. And just for real, not trite things. They, they were passionate about it. And it's a beautiful thing. And um, he said that there were many times that they would get into a frenzy when they would be torturing them, and they would begin to shout out, I'm the devil. And he shared that because he was talking about the spirit of communism. You know, this idealism or whatever. You know, Satan always wraps his stuff with candy. But he was saying at the heart of it is just Satan. And that they would hear this come out of these men when they were being, you know, some of the things that they do, it's not even humanly natural to do. They had to be possessed. You know, you read about some of the things that happened with, uh, with uh, Hitler and his men. They had to be possessed. It's not even humanly natural. I mean, there's, we all have those walls that come up from the time we're little, you know, to do something bad. It's like, uh, no, you know. They were, all their walls were gone, and pure evil overtook them. Which we see the hints of that with Cain, and we see that God warned him of that. Walking with God. I tell you, sometimes I think that the worst thing is kind of what we've had in America. I call it delusional Christianity because this is true no matter what we think we're experiencing. And what we think we're experiencing is we had a generation from the time of uh, Azusa Street, which sent, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. When the outpouring came, we sent missionaries all over the world within a space of like 10 years. Everybody who, uh, not everybody, so many people who went and got on fire and as it spread, they wanted to evangelize. Missions is evangelization. And they gave their lives for evangelization. But they were so on fire, and as the generations went, what began to happen was, um, I call it the Hophni and Phineas syndrome. It seems like a lot of the times it's the preacher's kids, it's those that were raised in the church, it's those who had godly parents who knew how to pray, who preached the word, and those kids were protected from Satan, and thereby, some of them, instead of instead of uh, being appreciative, what they did was they uh, began to, um, they longed after the things of the world that they were being told, no, you can't have it. They longed for it all of their growing up. And they didn't get bit by Satan, and therefore they weren't afraid of him. And as soon as they got 
old enough, they, you know, opened churches and did their different ministry things, but with the bent of, okay, now we can bring the world into the church, just to put it simply. And we've seen that happen for generations to where we are where we are now, where there's no fear of God, there's no speaking of holy. Holiness is a bad thing. Religious people talk about holiness. Holiness is the result of what Christ did at Calvary to wash away our sins, to make us clean, to make us spotless. You talk about a spotless bride. Oh, you're, you're old school. You're religious, you know, as though God wants a muddy bride, as though Jesus Christ died and shed his blood so we could just roll around in the dirt. It's stupid. I mean, we don't even think anything through. We don't have any critical thinking. We have no, no attention span, uh, which makes it really hard to evangelize. We need the power of the Holy Ghost more than ever because how do you talk to somebody when there's like no basic foundation of reason to work with? If you've talked to some of um, my daughter went to Baylor uh, University in Texas, and she, she just began to tell me the stories of how twisted the young people's minds are from the universities and from, from parents who lived for making money, uh, not to put them down, that's America. That's what, that's what we think is good. And, and then generation after generation, we've become shocked of, well, Grandma was a Christian. I, I don't know why my children are so antichrist. Well, after generations of us just expecting them to get it by osmosis, then they go to these universities where it doesn't matter if you're taking math or social sciences or cooking, they are cramming this kind of uh, socialism and communism down their throats in antichrist thinking. And these are universities, our Ivy League universities were founded as Christian universities. It's absolutely fascinating, and yet it isn't how it's happened. Um, Christianity was never meant to, to go to sleep at the wheel and just enjoy the blessings of God. We were left in this earth for a purpose. We have a duty. And as soon as we think that it's just about enjoying my life now, enjoying my life in the here and now, we find ourselves where we are. And, you know... Read it in the Old Testament. Israel did it over and over. Read the book of Judges. Whenever somebody says, God, the God of the Bible is not merciful, I'm like, read the book of Judges. I would have fried them all by chapter 2. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I know that the time span is condensed, so it seems worse than it is, because it's like, and God delivered them, and they went out and worshipped idols, and, and then they got in bondage, and they cried out to God, and God delivered them, and then they went out and worshipped idols, and got into bondage, and then they cried out, and God delivered them, and, <laughs> and it just goes on through the whole book of Judges, um, and that's, that's how we are, and God is so merciful, but I'm really believing that right now we are in a moment when he is about to really stir up a generation. And we need to pray for our young people. I mean, we're just like hoping that they get saved. No, we need some of them to become on fire generals and military in the house of God, preachers of the word once again. There's nobody braver than, than the young people when they really get it and when they get on fire and all of that, uh, what is that, that, that word? They have so much... Uh, Vitality and what energy and zeal, yes. And uh, we need to get serious about it, man. And all the revivals I've read about, when when and the revival I'm talking about, real revivals. What happens in real revivals, whatever the manifestations are, is people get saved. 
A spirit of grace comes in a spirit of prayer. It's always prayer. And people get woken up, people like you and me, we get woken up to the fact that we've got loved ones and we've got people all over the city and we've got people all over this country that need to be saved and today is the day. Because we are content to hang out and wait and see what God does. But he gave us all the promises. He gave us the Holy Ghost. He gave us the word to preach. We don't twist anybody's will, but when people get serious and get on their faces and cry out, I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, we don't have revival because we're content not to have it. The word is replete with if you'll cry out, if you're thirsty, I'm going to answer. And I've told you over and over again about the Hebrides revival. When one man, they'd been praying and praying, and one man finally stood up and said, God, your word says you'll pour water on the thirsty. And um, it opened something up in the spirit because after all that prayer, it came from a place of faith. You know, there, there is a working through that happens we say, yeah, I want that. I want revival. I want to get on fire. I want to see, you know, cool heavenly stuff. And then, and then we pray for a couple of days and go, well, that didn't work. There is a working that has to come inside of us that takes place when we get alone with God, when we get serious, when we get on our face. The first thing that happens in revival is he begins to deal with me as I get before him. He begins to deal with me and get the crud out of the way that keeps the promises and the power of the Holy Ghost from moving through me into the earth. And that has happened in every revival. The first thing that happens is a spirit of repentance falls on the church before it falls on the unbelievers. And that's what I'm believing for. I, I'm praying for us to have an outpouring right here. I want it everywhere, but God placed me here, so I'm praying about here, as you are. But we need to be serious and we need to not let it go because the devil will just take that right out of our hearts and right out of our minds if we let him and say, oh, that's a bunch of silliness, you know, just do your thing and go to church and, and love God and it'll be okay. I don't think so. Um, let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 11. We're talking about the two witnesses here in chapter 11 that show up with the power of God in the time when the whole earth is rebelling against God and it's, the whole thing's just about over. Um, chapter, seven, uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, when the two witnesses are through testifying and calling down plagues and, and trying to bring conviction to the world, uh, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. The ways of God are not our ways. These are guys that had just been calling down plagues and making it not rain and driving everybody crazy. And then all of a sudden, the Lord lets the beast rise up and kill them. Verse 8. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people of the kindreds and tongues of the nations, not just those in Jerusalem, but the nations, all the kindreds, all the tongues, the whole world, shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. Now, when this was written, that wasn't possible. It wasn't even possible to get the word out 
in ink and pen in three days to all the tribes and tongues of the nations. But now we have TV, we have internet, we have all of these things. Everybody's got a cell phone that, that, uh, that gets all of the above. And for three and a half days, the whole earth is going to look at these two prophets. They called plagues down. They, they caused famine. And they shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. They're going to hate them so much as to leave them in the street to rot. And they that dwelled upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry, shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. That is a real hatred of, of God. But you think of things that have happened in uh, the news in, in uh, years past. You think of some of our soldiers that were that were downed in foreign countries. You think about uh, the Twin Towers when they fell, and then they showed people in, in Islamic nations rejoicing and partying, thinking that they had done a holy thing. Uh, verse 11, after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we could go on, but I'm going to stop right there. What I was talking about earlier, the things of the Spirit being more real than the natural temporal things. These men had to be willing to stand up in a climate when they were not welcomed and prophesy and preach the word of God to the point that they were killed in the street. And the enemy and the world thought that the beast overcame them. But he didn't overcome them. In three and a half days, they were resurrected. I believe that we should draw strength from this. Um, if things continue in the vein that they're going, I will be surprised if I leave this earth via expiring or via the second coming of Christ. I'm going to be very surprised if I don't know any martyrs by then or... or myself. I'll be, that's great. I welcome that. But I am, I would be surprised. So this is the, this is the truth. This is the reality. I remember I asked the Lord many years ago when he said that, uh, don't be afraid, not a hair of your head shall perish, you know, and, and you read places in the word where it seems like, you know, Psalm 91, you know, a thousand is going to fall at your right side, 10,000, or at your side, 10,000 at your right hand but it won't come nigh you. And you read these things, and it's like, look, God's going to protect me from everything of physical harm. But then you see Jesus say, don't be afraid of him who can kill the body, but be afraid of him who can cast the body and the spirit into hell to be tormented forever. And we have to begin to think differently. Um, I shared this recently, uh, talking about these two brothers. The devil thought he killed them. He thought he destroyed them. And we could see it really clear here because it was only three and a half days and they were resurrected. But we have brothers that were killed in the Roman Colosseum that are still asleep. And they haven't resurrected. As Satan thinks he killed them, you know, those that, that were turned into human candles, those that were torn apart by animals, those that were killed as a, as a family, parents and children together, mutilated, tortured. And the enemy thinks that he killed them. 
but it doesn't matter if it's three days or 2,000 years, they're going to be resurrected, and there's not going to be a hair missing, not going to be an eyelash missing, not going to be a fingernail missing. They're going to have resurrected bodies that are going to live forever and ever and ever. Our hope is not in this world. If they hadn't have been killed in the Roman Colosseum, they'd still be dead. At best, you and I have what, you know, I, I know a lady I read about that lived 110 years recently. She's still alive. But um, you can't guess that there's a whole lot more years for her. And I'm 55. And I tell you what, I'm definitely, you know, when you're in your 40s, you're still like, I'm still young, I'm still young. And then something happens when you turn 50, you're like, you start counting. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, gosh, I know so many people that died in their 70s. <laughs> That's not too far away. And so whether we go by martyrdom or by an accident or by health reasons or we live to 110 or the second coming, no matter how you look at it, how far away are any of us from meeting Christ? Seriously, everybody in here, think about your age right now and how many years logically would you probably have left at the far end of the spectrum? And it's like I turned 50 and I've always wanted to serve Christ, but now I'm even like, oh, I only have a little bit of time left. Marty preached it in, in, the, in the sermon this morning about that we're in that time of the harvest. And Jesus, Jesus told his disciples after he ministered to the woman at the well, and she went out and immediately started gleaning in the field of Samaria. And, and they're there, and they're just thinking about food and lunch. And, and uh, Jesus isn't hungry, and, he, and he's done the will of his father. And he says, I'm full. He's eaten meat. And he said, you know, you guys, don't tell me that the harvest is in four months, because I'm telling you, look around right now. The fields are white to harvest. That's the different right, difference right now and always between us and God, we are so settled on the natural things, and he's looking at the harvest of souls, and we're looking at lunch, and that's just how we are. But he wants us to wake up, and he wants us to realize, and I'm going to share these books with you because they keep, they keep me awake. They wake me up when I see what my brothers and sisters are going through right now today, what they've been through and how they're reaping souls, every single one of them. Uh, that, that same brother from Romania, he made me laugh because uh, one of the Westerners, like we are, we're so smart, said, none of your pastors over here have houses. The Lord hasn't blessed you in, with any houses or homes. And he said, what would we want with a house? If we get a house because we preach the gospel, the government's just going to take it away from us anyways. What's the point? So they're just so not caught up in the things that distract you and I. Praise you, Lord. Um, let's go to 1616. No, I didn't write 166. I'm sorry. <clears throat> We're just kind of bouncing all over the book of Revelation. Um, at this point, we've come to the point. Okay, keep your place there. Look back at look back at 14. In chapter 14, um, in chapter 9, I'm not going to read it, 9 through like 12, it talks about the mark of the beast coming into play. He causes everybody, um, 
to need this mark to eat, to drink. To I mean, my one of my daughters, my high tech daughter, gave me a iWatch for my birthday, and the first thing I read was I could I can buy stuff with it, you know, just scan it. And I was I told her, oh, you gave me a beast watch. Next year you're going to give me an implant, you know, just teasing her. But it's so it's so conceivable right now. Um, I had a dream in the 90s, early 90s, that uh, all cash was done away with. Imagine that. Imagine if all cash is done away with and they decide they're not going to use credit cards for whatever reason and the only way we can buy or sell is with some sort of an implant in our wrist or in our, in our forehead. That's not too inconceivable, is it? I mean, I hope we don't see it, but what if we do? Because that's coming to the whole world. When that comes, whenever that is, America's not going to be exempt. Um, so we're going to skip that portion and we're going to go down to verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came down, came out, excuse me, of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. When I see verse 14, I see Jesus, but I don't know. That's what I think. I am not set in stone on any of this prophetic stuff in the book of Revelation. I'm reading it, staying familiar, and watching what happens. But I think that's Jesus. He's going to come back in the clouds. He has a crown. None of the other angels had a crown. And he has a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. It says he's looked like the son of man. Just to divert really quickly, Brother Marty preached this morning about Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, being a type of Christ. And when he was preaching that, it was so cool. We all know that death came through one man, Adam, so life had to come through a man, Jesus Christ. But in, in light of the book of Ruth, I thought, wow, he had to become our kinsman redeemer. In other words, he had to become relation. He had to become family. He had to come down and put on an earthly body and actually become our relative as a human being because he wasn't a human being in order to become our kinsman redeemer. And so here in verse 14, we see one who looks like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. I believe that that might be the rapture right there. The harvest of the earth, the souls. And he sat on the cloud and thrust in the sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. And then verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, having also a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridle by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. I believe that the first one is the grain of the earth and that's people who are saved. I believe that the second one is the fruit 
which actually means the fruit of the doings of human beings in the earth. You see, people have asked always, why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? Isn't God going to do something about it? And yes, he's keeping track of all of it. And the day is coming when it's fully ripe, the sin and the horror of mankind and what they've done on the earth. And when that moment comes, those grapes are going to be put into the wine presses of God. And when I read verse 20, the wine press was trodden without the city and blood came out of the wine press, even under the horse's bridle by the space of 1,600 furlongs. People usually share that in a sense of, wow, that's the kind of destruction that God's going to reap on the earth. Um, which there is destruction that he is going to. But um, I think that refers to the fruit of human beings and the blood of the martyrs that was shed. And if not just the blood of the martyrs, just the blood of mankind. Because the Old Testament is full of God talking about doing right and doing justly and not shedding innocent blood and, and taking care of the widows and the orphans. And um, I believe that that's what that is. I believe that is the blood that human beings have shed in martyrdom, in war, in murder, in every kind of heinous act, shedding the precious blood that was given by God. Life is in the blood, and it's a horrible thing for human beings to take and shed the blood of another and to, to waste their life made, of, made in the image of God. So I believe that that's what that means. And we've got two reapings here. I think that that first one is the rapture, and then... Part of the reason I think that is um, if you go to chapter 15 and verse 7, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Um, when people talk about end time prophecy, those that say that we won't be here for any of the tribulation, which I really don't know, I hope we're not, but they often quote the scripture, we're not appointed unto wrath. Well, God's wrath isn't poured out until chapter 15. And we are not appointed unto wrath. Um, let's see. Um, gosh, I want to read Revelation 6.10. So go backwards for a minute. And I'll be, I'll be wrapping it up. Or verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. This is Christ coming and opening the seals. Um, John is lifted up into heaven. He sees, he sees uh, God on, on the throne with a book in his hand. And then heaven is searched to find somebody who's worthy to open that book and loose the seals. Nobody's worthy. And uh, John cried over that. That's earlier. That's not right here. And he wept over that. But then one came who was the lamb. And uh, he was told by the angel, don't cry because the lamb has prevailed and he's able to open the seals. I believe that when Christ showed up as the lamb in glory and he had offered himself, that those seals began to be opened then. That's what I believe. 
you can look through hum human history and see the wars and see the plagues and see things like Hitler and, and see the early church persecution, and you can see things that look like these seals and what begins to happen in the book of Revelation all the way back from the beginning. So I really believe that it happened then. If you go to the end and you go to the beginning of the book of Revelation, both places, Jesus talks about how these things are, are, are upon us now. When you read the letters, it's like everything is, you know, the second coming is now, now in the last days, Paul said. And um, they talk like they were in all these things now, and I believe that they were. The persecution on the early church apostles was tremendous. They were in prison. They were beaten. They were, um, many of them were martyred. And so... The funny thing is, is that heaven wanted the seals to be opened. Heaven sees things so differently than we do. Why is that? Because the fullness of the wrath of God had to come. Humankind had to be able to express themselves to the fullness of their fruit in goodness and in evil. God, this is the same God that let Satan rebel against him and take a third of the angels. He allowed it. It's been a long time, and Satan hasn't paid the price yet, but he's going to. We have a very patient God who's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, as well as he is allowing people who are evil to be so evil that when they stand before the great white throne judgment, they are what they are. They did what they did, and there is no excuse. And for every one of those evil people, the blood of Christ was there if they had wanted to receive it. And so, uh, where was I? Six, and what verse did I just read? He, he opened the fourth seal. Da, da, da. When he had opened the fifth seal, so we're on the fifth seal already, since the Lamb came and started opening them, I saw under the altar the souls of men that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. I believe that's from the blood of righteous Abel all the way through the Old Testament, all the Old Testament prophets that were killed, all the way through the early church, all the way up to the middle, mid-ages, all the way up to now. Uh, our, we had probably brothers and sisters killed today in the Middle East for their faith, this very day. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? That is what's coming. When you see the wrath being poured out, it's not for those that have, have accepted Christ and been cleansed by the blood and serve him, but he put it in here. He wants us to see. He wants us to understand the whole heart of God. God is loving and kind and merciful beyond anything we can even understand, and he is judgment and truth and holiness beyond anything we can understand. So while we love him, and we can be close and near to him by the blood of Jesus, yet we fear and stand in awe of him. And, and when you look at things rightly, to have an idea that God is our servant there to, to do what we come up with with our earthly, physical, emotional whims is just ridiculous. We are called to serve him with our lives. And he is still waiting for people to answer the call and to go into the harvest fields. You can go there physically, if you're so called, to go to these hard, hard places. You can go there on your knees in prayer. Hmm. Prayer is so powerful. It is so real. You can have an effect on what's going on in the earth with the name of Jesus Christ. 
in the realm of prayer with the Father like you've never known. You just get on your knees and say, here I am, Lord. I'm checking in to your army. If you've never done it before, I want to pray. Teach me to pray, Holy Spirit. Use me. Or whatever it is that you're called to do, you need to do it. Because the time